Well, please look with me at the confessional reading portion of your order of worship. This morning we are confessing together Lord's Day 40, which consists of question and answers 105 through 107 as we continue to think about God's will for our lives in the Ten Commandments. As always, I will read the question if you would please respond by reciting the answer. Question 92 asks, what is God's law? You shall not murder. Question 105 asks, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? That I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I'm not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Question 106. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Question 107 asks, Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any, any such way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Well, boys and girls, uh, as always, what are the three sections of our catechism? Micah? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And what, what section are we in today? Gratitude. Very good. And what is, what is the definition of true faith? Annabelle? No. And what is the content of that faith? Noel? Good. The Apostles' Creed. Now, when you profess this true faith, what benefit do you, do you receive from God? Lily? Christ's righteousness. We are justified. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to our account. Now, where does this faith come from? Violet? The Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit works this faith in our hearts through preaching and confirms it and nourishes it through the Holy Sacraments. And as always, this is why church is important because we come to church primarily to hear the word and partake of the sacraments, the means that the Spirit uses to create confirm and strengthen our faith. What are the two keys of the kingdom? The two keys of the kingdom. Lily? Yes, the preaching of the word and church discipline. Now, we're in the gratitude section. The chief motivation for our obedience as Christians is gratitude, not fear, but gratitude. We obey not to maintain or earn our salvation, but rather we obey because our salvation has been freely earned by another by Jesus Christ. Now, what question is, does the first commandment answer? What question does the first, Violet? Who we worship, right? We worship God alone. And what, what question do the second and third commandments answer? 
Annabelle? How we worship and the fourth commandment. What the fourth commandment? Noel? Yes, when we worship. Correct. So the who, the how, and the when. First four commandments deal with how we love God, and it places a priority on worship. It tells us who we worship, how we worship, and when we worship. Now, last week, we transitioned to the second table of God's law, which deals with our love for neighbor. And we considered the meaning of this command that we are to honor, to love our our parents. And there's a much broader application to that commandment than merely the relationship between children and their parents. It deals with our relationship between all legitimate earthly authorities. Well, now we transition to the sixth commandment. Martin Luther, as he reflected upon the second table of law, had a very keen observation. He noted how the second table of the law proceeds from the major to the minor. So when you think about the sixth commandment, that's murder, very overt, very extreme, and then you proceed all the way to covetousness, which resides in the recesses of the heart. However, when you consider each one of these commandments, there's much more going on in these commandments than what appears to be there on the surface. You can think of the commandment itself as sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more encapsulated in that commandment than what just appears in a sentence or so in the Decalogue itself. And so this morning, we are going to dive below the surface, as it were, and consider what God's will is for us in this sixth commandment. On the surface, this seems like a pretty easy command to obey, you shall not murder. But as we consider Jesus's exposition of this commandment, as we consider the, the catechism's exposition on this commandment, we, I pray, will be humbled at how hard it is to obey this and how we are in this life unable to put forward perfect obedience to this sixth commandment. So first we're going to consider what is forbidden in this commandment. Now, of course, murder itself is forbidden, but you'll notice in question 106 that it also forbids hidden murder. So question 106, again, says that by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. And in God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. So God condemns not only overt, explicit murder, but he also condemns and forbids the root of murder. God not only forbids fruit-like sins, but also root-like sins. The sins that we commit with our lips and, and in our hearts and in our head. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? With Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount might come to mind. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verses 21 to 22 to his disciples, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is essentially rebuking the Pharisaical interpretation of the Sixth Commandment, which said that as long as you didn't murder, you you obeyed the Sixth Commandment. And Jesus is saying that there's a lot more to the sixth commandment than merely not murdering. And so notice how he points to our anger 
that exists in our hearts. He points to insults of the mouth. And he says that if you insult your brother, if you're angry with your brother, you have transgressed the sixth commandment. Jesus here is condemning both murder itself, but also these disguised forms of murder, or murder in root form. Now, the Catechism fleshes out Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 5 by saying that envy, hatred, anger, and vengefulness are all types of hidden murder. They're the root of, of murder. Now, when you think about conflict in, in your life or just in, 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 in theory, most of the time, if not all the time, when there's conflict, these, these emotions, these vices are, are present. Envy, anger, hatred, vengefulness, insults. These are, are present. We feel these things often. But here, we are called to not water those roots. Because what happens when we water these roots, these emotions of anger, hatred, vengefulness, envy, is that they produce fruit. Fruit in overt actions, in words that come from our mouth, and in very extreme forms, murder. Or, maybe more often, they can produce the fruit of passive aggression, where we might not physically do something overt in, in terms of insult, but we just avoid or disassociate. Well, that's also us, the fruit of us watering these roots of, of anger and hatred in our hearts. Now, in verses 23 through 24 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus continues. And he says, so if you're offering your gift before the altar, again, remember that Jesus is speaking still in an old covenant context. And so the Jews would still offer their gifts at the altar. And so he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So notice what Jesus is saying there. He's not only forbidding our, the anger in our hearts, but he's also saying that if you know that another brother, so another Christian, another member of the body of Christ, if you know that one of your brothers has something against you, is harboring anger in their hearts against you, it's your responsibility to go, and insofar as it depends on you, pursue peace with that individual. And he says that you should do this before you offer your gift at the altar, before you worship. Now, what's the connection between worship and reconciliation and, and conflict? It's an interesting question to think about. Well, what, what are we doing when we gather for worship? We are essentially saying that we are, we are members of the body of Christ in heaven and on earth. And Jesus is saying we are to live according to that identity that we profess to embrace. So Jesus, our catechism, forbids murder, but also hidden murder. Anger, hatred, insults. Well, what is required? If, if those are some of the things that... that that are forbidden, what is required in the sixth commandment? Sean? Love, charity. Yeah, love and charity. So in that sense, the sixth commandment is representative of the entire second table of the law. 
Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments as love for God, love for neighbor. And so the positive command in the Sixth Commandment is love for neighbor. In that sense, it's representative of the entire second table. Now, when you look at the etymology of the word neighbor, we are called to love our neighbor. The word neighbor near, uh, literally refers to your near dweller, the one who dwells near you. And so we don't need to go and search for our neighbor. When the Bible calls us to love our neighbor, those are the people who are in your life presently, the people that you see every day, every week, every month. You know, when Luther said that, you know, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does, he's, he was referring to the people in, in your life, the people that you see on a routine basis. And so when you think about how scripture defines our neighbor, we see, first of all, that our neighbor is our natural family. Um, most of us see family, natural family, every, every day. If you're married, if you have kids, uh, if you live in the same community as extended family, you see your natural family every day or on a routine basis. And we are called to love our natural family. Next week, we'll consider the seventh commandment, which touches upon the institution of marriage. Husbands and wives are to love, respect, submit to one another in a way that reflects Christ's relationship to the church. Last week, we considered the fifth commandment, which touches upon how children are to submit, honor, and be patient with their parents, and how parents are called to raise, instruct, and discipline their children. Parents are also called to provide for their children. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So parents have the responsibility of, of providing and raising their children. Now there is a, a biblical and even creational mandate to have children. However, that, that mandate is qualified in an important sense. Uh, we as image bearers are not, are not called just to be fruitful and multiply, but we're called to, be, to provide and raise those children well. And that takes a certain amount of financial resources. It takes time, energy, and sacrifice. Uh, if you have a family, you've no doubt had to sacrifice as many other good, good legitimate pursuits. The side note, when you look at the image of God, the image of God is a very robust idea. And no single individual can, can represent or embody the entire image. We all have to be selective. You can't pursue every good that scripture puts forward. We're limited, finite creatures. And so if you have a family, no doubt you are pursuing a very legitimate good, but you at the same time are not able to pursue many other goods. If you're single, if you don't have a family, and if that's the life the Lord is calling you to, then you are able to pursue other goods that are connected to the image of God that you wouldn't be able to pursue if you were married or had kids. And so you see that the image of God is a very robust idea that doesn't just encompass marriage or being fruitful and multiplying. It's, it's very expansive. And so we are called to love our natural family. Well, second... We are also called to love our church family. Listen to what Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
Notice what Paul's saying there. We, as Christians, are called to do good to everybody, but especially to those of the household of faith. Now think about the metaphor of a household. A household in a natural family has a very defined membership. Right now, when you think of your own individual household, it's very cut and dry who is a member of your household and who is not a member of your household. If I come to your household, I come as a, a visitor, a guest. I'm not a member of your household. Well, Paul's saying so it is with the church. There, is, there should be a defined membership when it comes to the local church. Those who have explicitly submitted themselves to the elders of that local church and have committed themselves to the other members of that local church. And so when a Christian becomes a member of a local church, they're not only submitting to the elders of that local church, they're also making a commitment to the other members that they will seek to especially do good to them. And the members of that church are also making an implicit commitment that they will now seek to especially do good to them. Their responsibilities and commitments to being a part of the household of faith. Think about this in terms of a natural family, a natural, a natural family's household. And when you think about your own natural family, you do desire to love your neighbor, to do good to everybody in your life, but you especially seek to love your family. If you're married, yes, you, you want to love everybody, but you especially want to love your spouse. If you have kids, you, you want to love all children and all, all people, but you especially want to love your kids and you probably would do anything for them. And there's an analogy there when it comes to the household of faith. We should, and we are called to love all people, but we should especially do good to those who are in our own local church, the household of faith. And so we are called to love the family of God. Well, third, in the new covenant, our neighbor is also our enemy. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. A few passages after the passage that we, I recently read from, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is essentially saying that we should imitate God's benevolent common grace, which he displays not only on the righteous, but also on the wicked, as he sends the rain upon both, and he allows the sun to rise upon both. And so we are to love our so-called enemies. Now, who, who is our enemy? How would you explain or explicate that reference? Who is... Well, non-believers, that's a great... I think that's a great example. When you think about how, how does culture view a conservative Christian and a liberal atheist or agnostic? They're enemies. And so I think we're called, insofar as we have opportunity, to actually have relationships with unbelievers, non-Christians, those who have radically different convictions, beliefs, and even morals than we do. This is especially important as a church plant. One of the ways in which we grow as a church plant is not just by me as a pastor or the elders here being intentional about, about outreach, but each individual member being intentional with the people in their lives, Christians and non-Christians alike. So I think that's a great example. Uh, we are called to love and 
develop relationships with people who we wouldn't probably ordinarily develop relationships with. So we are called to love. We are called to love even our enemy in the new covenant. Now, how does the gospel, remember this, the Ten Commandments fall in the gratitude section, which means that our motivation is gratitude for the gospel. So how does the, the gospel motivate our obedience to the Sixth Commandment? Tony. I mean, you're motivated by right. Gratitude, and, and you think about God's love for us in Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, God reached out to us in love so that we might be reconciled to him. Christ modeled perfect love for his enemies by his love for us. Or 1 John 4.19, we read, we love because he first loved us. So our love is meant to be motivated from the love that we've received in the gospel. Now Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, made a very very uh, um, perceptive point when it comes to the difference between human love and God's love. And he talked about how ordinarily our love for others is reactive, meaning we are naturally inclined to reach out in love to those who are desirable, those who are attractive to us, those who may seem to be able to benefit us in some way. We're naturally inclined to love those people, and it's relatively easy to love those people. But God's love is not reactive. God's love is creative. God sets his love upon creatures who are wholly undesirable, unattractive, unworthy, and he makes them holy. It would be pretty bad news if God's love was only reactive. He only reached out to those who are inherently righteous or holy or could offer him something. But God's love is creative and we are then called in the Sixth Commandment to, insofar as we can, imitate that kind of love. Now, of course, we can't actually change people the way God changes people, but it's very easy for us to only really want to sacrifice and love those who are desirable, those who seem to be, at least in our sinful perceptive, or, or perception, worthy of our love. It's di difficult to move towards those who seem undeserving or undesirable or who can't offer us anything. But that's the type of love that we are called to um, embody as Christians. And when we do that, we show forth the love of Christ to this world. Jesus says that it's by the love of his disciples that all people will know that he is the Son of God. This is a counterintuitive love. This love doesn't make sense, really, apart from a robust understanding of the gospel. So we can't ever forget about the gospel as we think about this, our obedience, as we think about God's will for us in the Decalogue. It's God's gospel that puts wind in our sails as we seek to live lives of grateful obedience. Well, next week we will turn our attention to the seventh commandment and consider what God's will is for us in that commandment. So let us pray.